seated. And the title of today's sermon is, very appropriately, I hope you'll agree, How Not to Go Insane in the Wake of the 2020 Elections. Here's how the sermon's going to work. Pretty much, I'm going to ask questions and then answer them. Now and then, I'll just make a statement, a declaration, and I'll put some of those up for you as we go. But it's going to be, I'll ask a question, and then I'll give you what I think are the biblical answers. So here's the first question. Let's get it going. How much does it all matter? And by all, I mean all of this, particularly this political season, presidential elections going on, all the turmoil and uncertainties and all the different views and all the positions of various people in our nation, how much does it really matter? How much do 2020 politics really matter? How worked up should I be about it? How interested should I be in it? How much should I let it dominate my life? How much should it mean to me? How much of my very limited bandwidth should I give to its consideration? How much does it all matter? I'm going to answer that question for you with an analogy first. It's going to matter to you about the same way that it matters that you love your parents. Let's talk about this for a minute. Hang in there with me. Do you love your parents? you should love your parents. Some of them are more lovable than others, but we should love them all. The Bible tells us to honor our father and mother in the Lord. It's the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you may live long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. We're to honor our father and mother. And the Bible tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and surely some of my nearest neighbors on the planet are my mother and my father and my parents. So yes, emphatically yes, the Bible teaches us that we are to love our parents. But then what do you make of this? These are words of the Lord Jesus taken from Luke's gospel, chapter 14 and verse 26. And Jesus establishes some of the terms of discipleship with these words when he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate. Really? And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So the Bible teaches that you're supposed to love your parents and honor your parents, but then Jesus says, actually, you have to hate them if you want to follow me. Now, those of you who are exegetically, that means able to draw the meaning out of the text, you're exegetically astute. You're eager to explain to us that what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a hyperbole, an exaggeration for effect. It's a figure of speech to powerfully make a point. He doesn't really mean you should hate your parents. He doesn't mean you should hate anybody. You should love everybody. The Bible makes that clear. But what he's doing is this. He's making a contrast to make a point. And he's saying the contrast between how much you love your parents and how much you love me and my kingdom and my honor and my name, the contrast between the kind of love they both get is so great that it is as if by comparison you hate your parents. You love me so much. 
so supremely with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You love the Lord your God. You love me so much as as if you hate your parents. Now that's going to serve as an analogy for me when we go back to the question I asked a minute ago. How much does all this matter? So let's put that up on the slide. How much does all this matter? Answer number one is, well, it matters a ton. Politics matters. So does law, so does economics, so does education, so does medicine, so does agriculture, so does pretty much everything. But politics matters because it has such power to affect lives. So it really does matter. I wanted to make sure you you heard me say that. It matters with respect to the kingdoms of the earth It matters a ton. But in comparison to the kingdom of God, it hardly matters at all. It's it's almost, it's worth hating compared to the kingdom of God. So much does the kingdom of God captivate our love, our passions, our souls, our lives, our hearts, that it's as if our interest in politics does not even exist. It's almost as if, to kind of use the words of the Lord Jesus, to rightly appreciate the value of my kingdom, you must hate American politics. He doesn't really mean hate them. They're really important. You don't have to hate them. But the comparison is so great, it looks like you hate them because you really love and care about the kingdom of God. Let me explain this further. Why? You love the one, and it's as if you hate the other. I'll put up this next phrase. Followers of Jesus Christ, I hope you know this, followers of Jesus Christ have dual citizenships. This is not like a make pretend. It's not like let's make believe that. Let's imagine that. No, this is a reality. We have dual citizenships. Just like if your father and mother were American citizens, but they were in Germany when they gave birth to you, and now you have dual citizenships, you are a German citizen and you're a United States citizen. In the very same way, you were born, most of you probably, as citizens of these United States of America. I was born in Gettysburg. How American is that? I was born in Gettysburg, and I'm a citizen of the United States, but I was reborn when I was 17 years old, into the kingdom of God. And ever since then, I, I participate in the fortunes or the woes of two kingdoms, two nations, a heavenly one and an earthly one. Let me show you how Paul uh, mentions his dual citizenships. First in Acts 16, 13, he took a licking and kept on ticking, but he said, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned, here it is, men who are Roman citizens. He was a Roman citizen, and from time to time he played that card and got himself out of hot water and saved his, his neck. So he was a Roman citizen. But then look at what he says in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? 
You have, yeah, you have a dual citizenship. You're a citizen of these, probably most of you, these United States, but you're also just as truly, and more importantly, a citizen of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you a a quick glance We'll put it up. A quick glance at some scriptures that elucidate our dual citizenship. We're just going to run through these kind of quickly, but I wanted you to have a peek of them so they build in your soul a little. Let's go to the first one, please. In Hebrews 11, of a whole bunch of faithful people, it says, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Oh, no, they lived in nations. They had national identities. No, no, they were strangers. They were conscious of the fact, we don't really belong here. There's somewhere else we belong. We don't really want to be here. There's somewhere else we want to be. We are strangers and we are exiles. My home is elsewhere and here I am in exile on this planet. Next passage, please. But as it is, later in Hebrews 11, they desire a better country. Now just to make it clear, unless any of you get the wrong impression, I absolutely love these United States. I'm deeply thankful for this nation. We are so blessed in spite of all the brouhaha and difficulties that we face. We are so blessed to be in this country. But they desire, we desire, I desire a better country. Not not a better USA. That's nice too. But a heavenly one where my other citizenship lies, and my heart is torn. I got, got both of these nationalities next, Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, and I'm going to stretch that a little bit to mean, and no, na- no lasting nation, and no lasting citizenship, because we're going to die, or the nation might fold. Nations come and go. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Amen? Amen. That's what I really want. I want that city. I want that nation. I want that king. I want that kingdom. And furthermore, Peter chimes in. He can't keep quiet. You know how Peter had that problem. And in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you, you believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now here it is. You are a holy nation. You are a nation that is set apart from earthly nations. You are a nation, but it's a holy one. It's a nation of people set apart to God. It has no geographical boundaries. It doesn't, it isn't bound by time. It's all believers of all time. There's a nation. You're part of that nation, a people for his own possession. He looks at you and says, my people, Once you were not my people, but now you are my people through the blood of Christ. And then Peter says a little more in this quick glance at some scriptures that elucidate our dual citizenship. He says, 1 Peter 2.11, beloved, beloved, pardon me a second. I urge you as, here's your identity, sojourners and exiles. What's a sojourner? I'm just here for a little time. Been out of the nation, been to another country, maybe you went to Italy, visited your roots, where your people came from. You were a sojourner. How interested in Italian politics did you get while you were there? Probably not very. I'm not saying you shouldn't be interested in American politics. Some of you might have a career in politics. Bless you. We will pray for you. Be honest. Do good. 
Be virtuous, lead our nation well. It's an important job that you're doing. I'm not belittling the job, but compared to the kingdom of heaven, we're sojourners and we are exiles. This is not our real home. So we have a dual citizenship, USA and kingdom of God, and they have different claims upon us. So my next question to help us keep going in this sermon, which kingdom receives our greatest allegiance? Well, that's pretty easy, right? Is anybody going to say, oh, the United States? I don't think so. Which kingdom gets our loves, our deepest passions, our ardent desires? Which kingdom captivates our souls and our hearts? Which kingdom lights us up with interest and excitement? Which kingdom is the one we're really living for? It's easy. I'll help you answer it by asking you another question. Put this question up. Well, if you had to give up one and keep the other, which would it be? Yeah. If you had to, if you had to give up one, would you say, how many would say, I'll give up going to heaven and keep my American citizenship? I'll give up the kingdom of God, I'll keep my American citizenship. No. How many would say, look, if I had to make a choice, that's easy. I like heaven. I'm I'm hanging on to the kingdom of God. You can take my American citizenship. That would be a terrible thing to lose that. It's a great blessing. It's a great value. But compared to the kingdom of God, it's an easy, easy question to answer. If I had to give up one and keep the other, I'm keeping Jesus. I'm keeping God sitting on the throne, that throne, not this throne down here. I'm keeping the laws of God and the ways of God and the politics of the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ. I am far more interested in the King of Kings and the Lord Jesus than, dare I say it, I will, who our next president's going to be. Far more. No comparison. I'm very interested in who our next president's gonna be. I don't know when we're gonna know it. I haven't even been, I don't even wanna know. I've not been paying attention to any news. So somebody tell me, have we already found out? We have not, all right, we're, we're waiting. So let me make some points of application, or one or two from everything I've been saying so far. There will be more points of application later, but here, here's something I wanna make as a point right now. The world we live in, the nation we live in, is, is right now intensely, insanely interested in and divided over politics. It's all they've got. It's the big deal for them. It's about power and what's going to happen on the planet and who gets to force who according to their morals and their ethics. It's all they've got and they're nuts about it. And if you want to devote yourself to something, well, there are lots of decent causes, but politics is one of the big ones for them. And this is the air we breathe and this is the water we're swimming in. And if you turn on the TV, does anybody still turn on the TV? If you, if you look at something online, you're going to get bombarded with Politics, 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 politics. It's all around us. The media is on fire with it. Politics is discipling us. It is one of their greatest interests. This might be a very good place to remember the words of Romans 12 where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind 
that you may prove, that you may show forth what is that good and perfect will of God, which is your reasonable, it's very reasonable, your service. So we're not going to be like them where they think politics is it. It's, it's the big thing. It's the powerful thing. We're going to say, oh, no, no, no. Actually, I hate it in comparison to my allegiance to the King of Kings and my love for the kingdom of God and my interest in the kingdom of God. Our great concern is not this kingdom, though it's really important, but that kingdom. Now, if I followed you on Facebook or on Twitter or on name the other ones, Instagram and whoever else, would I get the impression that you are absolutely on fire about the kingdom of God, seeing the gospel spread so that more citizens become citizens of the kingdom of God. If I followed you, if I looked at your page, would I get the impression that, yeah, you really are, your heart is in that kingdom because you're talking about it a lot? Or would I get the impression that you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me put a phrase up for you here. You might need to recalibrate your upset scale or your happy scale. So whoever lands in the Oval Office by mid-January, I hope, whoever lands in the Oval Office, some of you are gonna be upset, some of you are gonna be happy. You might need to recalibrate your scale, whichever of those you are. You can be happy if it's the guy you wanted in there. Go ahead and be happy, but don't be too happy. It's just the kingdom of men. You need to save your really big happies for the kingdom of God. You need to save your jumping and leaping and praising God for the kingdom of God. Bless the name of the Lord. Somebody has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now I'm excited. Believers are growing and following the Lord their God faithfully. They're living biblically on the planet. That's big. You might need to recalibrate your upset scale or your happy scale. If the person you didn't want lands in the Oval Office, how upset are you going to be? Well, as far as the kingdom of men concerned, yeah, that's a big deal. But compared to the kingdom of God, hate it hardly even matters. So we're a mix of differing levels of concern for the affairs of our two nations. Let me put up a phrase, here it comes. In one sense, you care very deeply about human government, yet in another, it's not my circus, not my monkeys. I didn't mean to call anybody a monkey. Christians will differ over this, over what I'm saying. Some Christians will differ with me over this, depending on their view, depending on their understanding, depending on their interpretation of what the Bible says about the future. So I just want to pause here and take you to footnote one on this page and give you what I'll call three major eschatological camps. Now, if you're new to Christian things and you wonder what in the world does that mean, eschatology is the study of last things. Eschatos is the Greek word for last. So eschatology is the study, the science of what the Bible teaches about 
from here on out till Jesus returns, from here on out till judgment, to the last day, what's going to happen? There are three major views, there are sub-views within them, underneath each of them, but three major views that Christians have about what the Bible teaches on this. By the way, the fact that there are really great, God-honoring, high view of Scripture, Bible scholars who differ over this matter should indicate to us probably what? We don't have enough data to know, or we're not smart enough to figure it out. And let's face it, all of us, we are all very stupid. You know that, don't you? Why do we have such problems on the planet? Because we're stupid. We can't figure things out. We're not very good at reasoning. None of us. Even the best people on the planet at reasoning don't always reason well because emotions take over. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. There are three major camps. They can't agree. So you should probably think if they can't figure it out, I probably can't either. So what are the three camps? Quickly, premillennial. Each of these has to do with our relationship to the coming of Christ, the relationship of the coming of Christ to the millennium. The Bible talks about a thousand years in one place. Um, And so premillennialists believe Jesus will come back pre, before that thousand year millennium. This affects their view of earth and politics. I'm not going into theirs. Amillennialists believe that there is no literal thousand years. It's just the church age, this long time, is the thousand years. Thousand is a round number for a long, long time. And at the end of the church age, Jesus comes back, and then it's judgment, new heavens, and new earth. That's amillennial. That may tilt them in certain directions with reference to politics. But postmillennialists are the one I really wanted to get to. Are are any of you postmills? You can be any of these in Cornerstone. We don't take a position Don't fight and get mad at each other. Just have a lively debate and then hug and go home. Touch elbows and go home. A post-millennialist says, no, I believe the church is going to usher in the millennium and then Christ will come back. So old school post-mills believe the church would usher in the millennium by gospel preaching. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to plant churches. We're going to disciple believers, and it's going to spread and spread and spread till the earth is full of the glory of God, and then Jesus comes back. We've ushered in the kingdom by gospel means. But new school post-millennialists tend to be we're going to usher it in by the gospel, yes, but also by we're taking over. Our task is to take over politics and law and um, education and all the, all the high seats of power. We got to take them over and claim them in the name of Jesus. So post-mills tend to be very, very interested in government. So I'll just mention to you, there's a post-mill pastor that I love. His name is Douglas Wilson. He's out in Moscow, Idaho. He's one of the podcasts that I listen to regularly. I go to the gym to listen to podcasts. I happen to work out while I'm there, but I'm there for the podcasts. It's the podcasts that get me through the workout. It's the podcasts that get me to the gym. So I listen to Douglas Wilson. He is rabidly post-mill, but he's one of the brightest Christian thinkers, most logical Christian thinkers I'm aware of that I've run into. I really love him. But everything he talks about is politics, government, law, economics. Why? Because he believes it is thus that we take over the kingdom of God. My brief critique over Prost Mills is, in our days, they tend to forget about the spreading the gospel part, and they go for the more sexy, 
we're doing politics. You know, the world will esteem that. That's my little critique. So, uh, some of you who are post-mill, if any of you are, now you don't want to admit it, if any of you are post-mill, you will not be agreeing with me at all. But I wish you would be a old-school post-mill and agree with me the big thing is spreading the gospel in the kingdom of God. All right, got to move on. Next thing I'm going to put up is how this all helps you. How this all helps you. Number one, this helps if you don't know who won. Like, who, who is our next president going to be? I don't know. Okay, but it's all right. It's just the kingdom of men. I know who the king of kings is, and that's not changing. I know who the Lord of lords is, and that's not changing. So it helps me in this little time where I don't know who won. Number two, this helps if your guy won and you're happy. I'll rejoice with those who rejoice. Whichever guy won, if he was your guy, I'll rejoice with you. I'm glad you're happy. Don't be too happy. You should actually just hate the whole thing. And the kingdom of God is so great and so captivates your love and your soul that it doesn't even matter what happened. Number three, this helps if your guy lost and you're not happy. That's going to happen to some of us in this room, right? Whichever guy, one of those guys, you voted for one, he's going to lose. And you're not going to be happy. Don't be too unhappy. It's just the kingdom of men. Listen, this goes back to the post-millennial thing. Did you ever see Jesus go around? Did you ever see Paul go around? Did you ever see Peter go around and give lectures on politics and how we're going to take over Roman government? They barely said a word about it, about government. A couple passages here, first uh, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Daniel chapter 2 and 4. It wasn't the big issue, the kingdom of God. Jesus said, my kingdom, the one I'm here for, the one I'm preaching about, is not of this world. He was not here to make Rome a better government. He was here to lead sinners to himself. So this helps if you won and you're happy. Don't be too happy. And this helps if your guy lost and you're not happy. Don't be too sad. And number four, hmm, this helps if you weren't really overly fond of either guy. <laughs> Which I bet might be some of you in this room. <laughs> this helps. Man, look at the choices you're saying. I'm not going to claim to be this. Look at the choices we have this year. Um, how do we end up like this? How much does it matter? Well, it matters a lot because politics matter, but compared to the kingdom of God, you hate it. Psh, barely worthy of my attention. All right. So this helps. But now one of you wants to ask me a question. So I've heard your question and I'm putting it up on the screen and you're saying to me, but really now, Pastor Steve, what if my guy doesn't win? I mean, like for real, what if my guy doesn't win? I've got his posters in my front yard. I got his stickers in the back of my car. What if my guy doesn't win? And what if a guy that I really don't want is going to be our president? I mean, you said that has great effects. Can I join a not my president march? 
No, you may not. Because first, it's not true. Whoever is in the Oval Office will be your president, sticking closely to terms. But, but does God offer me any help in the Bible to make me feel better about the fact that a guy I didn't want is now in the Oval Office, if that happens for you? Here's some help from God's word. It's 400 B, I'm sorry, it's 600 BC. We're in Daniel chapter four and Daniel gives us some words, some insight that help us immensely at a time like this. If your guy doesn't win. Daniel two, starting in verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Now watch these words. He changes times and seasons. You say, oh man, here we are in America. It looks like the times and seasons, they are a changing. He changes them. He changes them. He removes kings. Oh man, my guy might get removed, some of you will say. He sets up kings. Oh man, that guy might get set up and I don't want him. It's God. No, 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 it's not God. We voted. It's us. It's our representatives. It's the Electoral College. Those are little means that God uses to accomplish his ends, which are steadfast and sure and from all eternity, according to the counsel of his never-changing will. And in that, he removes kings and he sets up kings. If the guy you want gets in, God did it. And if the guy you don't want gets in, God did it. That's supposed to help you. That's supposed to help you. So let me give you what this means in a, in a little sentence. God is absolutely, totally, 100% sovereign over earthly governments and leaders. There is so much comfort in that. That doesn't mean you can just, just drop means and, okay, then I'm going to forget about politics. I'm never voting again because God's sovereign. No, he uses means. And you ought to work for what you believe will best bring in righteousness. But God is absolutely sovereign over earthly governments. I'm going to name some names now. If Joe Biden becomes president, God did that. Anybody gnashing teeth at me? I can't tell. You're all wearing masks. <laughs> it's great to people preach to people wearing masks sometimes. If Donald Trump is reelected, God did that. There is no king, there is no president in all of human history, but God set him up. There's none who got removed, but God removed him. Now, this doesn't mean that the ones that are set up by God, you have to like. It doesn't mean they're good. But it means that in his sovereign purposes and for his Sometimes unknown ends, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the, the hidden things are the Lord's. They're hidden things. Why would he put that one in place? I don't know. But it's God who does it. And just to show that we're not resting our case on one possibly obscure, arcane, open to various interpretations passage, let's go to Romans 13 and the Apostle Paul, who echoes those words and maybe teases it out a little bit more. He says, Romans 13, for there is no authority, read that word, no, Everybody say the word no with me. No. How many? No. There is no authority except from God. Let me remind you, who was the authority then? Who was it? 
Nero. What do you know about Nero? He had his mother bumped off because they had a political rivalry going on. He had his brother bumped off because he didn't want him to be a rival to his throne. Um, He had a wife bumped off because she was barren and bore him no children, and they became estranged. And just to finalize things, he had her killed. Um, He, we believe, watched Rome burn and celebrated and blamed it on the Christians. Uh, He was not a Sunday school teacher. But Paul says of Nero, the one that was on the throne at that time, he's from God. His authority is from God. He has been instituted, Greek verb, tasso, which means to assign, to appoint, to order. He was instituted by, assigned, appointed, ordered by God. By is the word hupa. It means there's a direct agent. He's cutting out intermediaries. Yes, there were intermediaries. They don't even count. God did it. God put Nero on the throne. Next slide, please. Paul goes on, furthermore, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So you don't go out in the streets and say, not my president. You're resisting what God appointed. Christians don't do that. Let's go on. Next passage. For he is, get this, Nero is God's servant. Whoever's in the Oval Office next, God's servant for your good. He is the servant of God. That might not mean he's a servant of God in terms of bringing in righteousness, but God is using him. He's serving God for God's ends and God's purposes, which are greater than we might imagine. He is God's servant for your good. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, for the authorities are ministers of God, Romans 13, 4 through 6. So this is how we view government and governors. It's from God. Why do we have the government we have? It's from God. Why do we have the governors that we have? They're from God. God put them in place, every one of them, right down to the meter maid. No offense if you're a meter maid. They're from God. This should stay your heart in this crazy climate that we're in. This should establish your soul and comfort you and give you peace if it looks like, uh uh-oh, the guy I really, 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 really don't want is going to get in. This should give you calm. All right, God's in charge. He's got his sovereign purposes. I will bow to them, and I will respect, I will respect the one who gets in. So I have 2 minutes, 25 seconds. We might stretch that a little bit. Here's the next question I want to ask. What do we owe government? Whichever one gets appointed, in their day it was Nero, what do we owe them? Hear God's word on what we owe them. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject. Hupa tasso, rank yourself under. Be subject to the governing authorities. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. My conscience tells me God put them in there, and he wants me to honor them. I will. Romans 13, 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. You're going to love this next part. Taxes. 
taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And he goes on uh, later that we're to honor the king. Whoever is president next, you honor that person. Doesn't mean you like their policies. Doesn't mean you like their character. But you honor them. Peter chimes in again. He just can't stop talking. Um, everything Paul says, he says, me too, me too. First Peter 2, 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, for this is the will of God. And then he makes it real clear in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Interesting, huh? Got one more thing I want to cover. Actually, I have more, but I'm going to do one more today. I I know somebody's going to say, so I'm going to bring it up. I'm anticipating what you're going to say. Somebody's going to say, what about the American Revolution? Romans 13 says, don't revolt, honor the king, submit to the king, respect the king. And whenever you're on this, somebody surely says, somebody can be counted on to say, well, what about the American Revolution? I don't mean the one that's being attempted in Portland right now either. I mean the one that was back when. You were supposed to laugh at that. (laughs) Sometimes people say, Romans 13 can't mean what it seems to mean. Otherwise, what about our American Revolution? Ah, my friend, you've got things backwards. What would Romans 13 have meant if there had never been an American Revolution? That's what it means. And we don't interpret Scripture by, oh, it can't mean that, otherwise we can't keep this thing that we have right here. No, 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 that's the other way around. We judge the thing, we judge politics, we judge revolutions by the Scriptures. So you say, then, Heartland, are you against the American Revolution? Now you're getting us into an issue, I got us into an issue, that's too big for me. But I do want to say this. Romans 13 gives us a general principle which says don't you start a revolution. But if somebody starts one, at a certain point, you're going to have to ask yourself a very important question, and that is, who is now my government? Who is now, who is now really in charge? For example, John Frame great theologian gives this example. During the Vietnam War, there were places controlled by Saigon during the day and controlled by the Viet Cong during the night, and it changed from day to day and night to night. Who is your government? Who's in charge? And at some point, Frame says, you're just going to need to, quote, make your best judgment as to which contending army is most in accord with Scripture. So in other words, if I'd been there during the American Revolution, I would have been saying, no, guys, Romans 13, Romans 13, Romans 13. Once they started the whole thing and there's a new government in place, I'd say, hmm, I think I'm under this government now. But one thing for sure is we don't twist Scripture to match our political desires. Hey, you know what? I have time. I'm going to squeeze in one more thing. Y'all okay with that? Let's take a vote. Y'all okay? That was democratic. We voted. All right. Question. What about 
Christians who don't vote like me? Well, Romans 4.14 answers that, and it says, receive one another, but not to disputes about doubtful things. Politics are doubtful things. The Word of God does not say which party you should be a part of. The Word of God does not say which candidate you should vote for. There are things in the Word of God that affect our choices and that we can judge candidates by, but the Word of God doesn't tell us who should be in the Oval Office. So that question is a doubtful thing. The Bible says whenever there's a doubtful thing, you receive one another and don't fight over it. So receive one another, but not to dispute about doubtful things. And John Frame again writes in his section on the Christian and government, each of us should have a large amount of tolerance for other Christians who come to conclusions that are different than our own. I think that's sound advice. So, this message was intended to help you a little bit to survive the 2020 elections. Did it help a little? Hope it helped a little bit. Let's go in a little bit. <laughs> Bless. Is that one of my grandsons? <laughs> Bless you. We're going to pray. So bow with me. Father, you have told us in Scripture that we should pray for kings and all who are in authority, that we may live quiet and peaceful lives because that's good for the gospel. It's good for the kingdom of God. So we lift up our nation, our ethics, our morals, our political decisions, our politicians. We lift it all up before you and bow low before you and pray with all our hearts, thy will, not my will, but thine be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, help us to trust in you. For those who are listening, maybe you're not a believer, there's something that's so much more important in your life than politics. It's you coming to the Lord Jesus. It's you believing in him and calling upon his saving name. Lord Jesus, be my God, be my savior. Father, would you draw people that from their hearts they may utter such words. Give us peace as a church in this chaotic political season. Help us to be very diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're asking for all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Just before